Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Tay. Grab a cup of coffee and And let's let's get get our fix. When I say the term sex offender, the first thing that might come to your mind is helpless children, a television show you've seen, stories you've read or heard about, or maybe even your own trauma. This episode is going to be educational on the sex offender registration notification system and historical changes throughout time. Although this will purely be educational, if this topic is triggering to you, please skip this episode and listen to our others. One thing that is important to remember is that not all victims are children or female, and not all convictions are what they may appear to be. So today we are actually drinking a homemade vanilla latte and can you believe it? We're drinking it warm. But it's so worth it because I love your homemade coffee. (laughs) Thank you. You already know if you guys want some at-home recipes, you can check out the blog at crimeaddictspodcast.com. And we want to give a huge shout out to our fellow crime addicts who have liked and followed us. We seriously cannot thank you guys enough for your encouragement, support, and excitement. If you haven't already, don't forget to like, follow, and share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on Twitter, Facebook, IG, and TikTok, or at CrimeAddictsPodcast.com. Okay, so let's get into it. What is the sex offender registry? Well, sex offenders must periodically report in person to their local law enforcement agencies and list of other information, such as place of employment and email addresses. The offenders are photographed and fingerprinted by law enforcement, and in some cases, DNA information is also collected. For more than two decades, states and the federal government have struggled with how to best protect the public from sexual predators, requiring states to register and publicize the names and addresses of convicted sex offenders has been thought to help protect the public by keeping citizens informed. However, Who should register and which information can be made public has been an area of contention between the states and the federal government. All 50 states and the District of Columbia maintain sex offender registries that are open to the public via websites, although information on some offenders is visible to law enforcement only. Information of juvenile offenders are withheld for law enforcement, but may be made public after their 18th birthday. Public disclosure of offender information for adults varies between the states depending on the offender's designated tier level, which may also vary from state to state or risk assessment result. The majority of states and the federal government apply systems based on conviction offenses only, where registration requirement is triggered as a consequence of the finding of guilt or pleading guilty to a sex offense regardless of the actual gravity of the crime. The trial judge typically cannot exercise judicial discretion with respect to registration. Depending on jurisdiction, offenses requiring registration range in the severity from public urination to adolescent sexual experimentation with peers to violent sex offenses. In some states, even offenses such as unlawful imprisonment may require sex offender registration. As a sex offender, if traveling across state lines, they must educate themselves on the local registration laws. 
Some states require sex offenders to register if they are there more than 48 hours. Some states it's more than 72 hours, etc. This kind of registration is as a visitor, not as a resident of that state. That's pretty interesting to take note. So even if you're just visiting, you have to make sure that you register yourself. Yes, you're notifying the public of wherever you're at, which is pretty interesting. In some states, the length of the registration period is determined by the offense or assessed risk level. In some states, the length of the registration period is determined by the offense or assessed risk level. In other states, all registration is for life. If the state requires lifetime registration upon conviction, the only way to be removed is to die or to appeal the judge's order. Sex offender registration and notification, which we're going to be calling SORN, has been studied for its impact on the rates of sexual offense recidivism, with the majority of studies demonstrating no impact. The Supreme Court of the United States has upheld sex offender registration laws both times such laws have been examined by them. Legal scholars have challenged the rationale behind the Supreme Court rulings. Perceived problems in the legislation has prompted organizations to promote for reform. So let's go on to some interesting facts. Did you know that sex offender registries in the United States exist at both the federal and the state levels? In 1947, California became the first state to establish a sex offender registry. In some states, sex offenders can't legally wear costumes or pass out candy on Halloween. That's actually pretty interesting. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that restricting sex offenders from using social media is unconstitutional. There are different theories for why offenders choose a certain victim. Research indicates that some offenders seek out certain victim types and others target victims who are seen as easily accessible. According to Human Rights Watch, children as young as nine have been placed on the registry. Juvenile offenders account for 25% of the registrants. The following is according to National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. 21.7 million plus reports were made to the cyber tip line in 2020, which is crazy because this is also the year that majority of us were on lockdown. 18,200 plus attempted abductions were analyzed. 67% of attempted abductions involved the suspect driving a vehicle. There are 917,771 registered sex offenders in the United States and its territories. If you do the math, that's 279 registered sex offenders for every 100,000 people. Wow, those facts are wild. It really puts things into perspective. Doesn't it? All right, let's jump into the history of the sex offender registration. In 1947, California became the first state in the United States to have a sex offender registration program. In 1990, Washington State began community notification of its most dangerous sex offenders, making it the first state to ever make any sex offender information publicly available. Prior to 1994, only a few states required convicted sex offenders to register their addresses with local law enforcement. The 1990s saw the emergence of several cases of brutal violent sex offenses against children. Heinous crimes like those of Wesley Allen Dodd, Earl Kenneth Schreiner, and Jesse Temendiquaz were highly publicized. As a result, public policies began to focus on protecting the public from stranger danger. 
Since the early 1990s, several state and federal laws, often named after victims, have been enacted as a response to public outrage generated by highly publicized but statistically very rare violent predatory sex crimes against children by strangers. Based on a 2003 report, prisoners convicted of rape or sexual assault who were released in 1994 were four times more likely to be arrested for a sex offense within three years of prison release than non-sexual offenders released within the same year. The average sentencing for imprisoned sex offenders was eight years and offenders served less than half of that period in prison. In the same 2003 report of 9,700 released sex offenders, 4,300 had been convicted of child molestation and most of those were convictions of molesting a child under the age of 13. Almost half of those imprisoned for child victim cases offended against their own child or other relative. Recidivism studies typically find that the older the prisoner when released, the lower the rate of recidivism. Only about one-third of violent rapes are reported, and sex crimes are widely believed to be the most underreported of all criminal offenses, with a reporting rate of barely one-third of such offenses. Under polygraph, many apprehended sex offenders indicated that most of their offenses were not reported. In an effort to protect the citizenry, local, state, and federal lawmakers responded to these issues through a variety of legislative enactments. Here's a historical timeline. Starting in 1994, we have the Jacob Wetterling Act of 1994. In 1989, an 11-year-old boy, Jacob Wetterling, was abducted from a street in St. Joseph, Minnesota. His whereabouts remained unknown for nearly 27 years until remains were discovered just outside Paintsville, Minnesota in 2016. Jacob's mother, Patty Wetterling, current chair of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, we're going to refer to this as NCMEC. So this led a community effort to implement a sex offender registration requirement in Minnesota and subsequently nationally. In 1994, Congress passed the Jacob Wetterling Crimes Against Children and Sexually Violent Offender Registration Act. If states failed to comply, the states would forfeit 10% of federal funds from the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act. The act required each state to create a registry of offenders convicted of qualifying sex offenses and certain other offenses against children and to track offenders by confirming their place of residence annually for 10 years after the release into the community or quarterly for the rest of their lives if the sex offender was convicted for a violent sex crime. States had a certain time period to enact this legislation, along with guidelines established by the Attorney General. The registration information collected was treated as private data, viewable by law enforcement personnel only. Although, law enforcement agencies were allowed to release relevant information that was deemed necessary to protect the public concerning a specific person required to register. Another high-profile case, abuse and murder of Megan Kinka, led to modification of Jacob Wetterling Act. These subsequent laws forcing changes to the sex offenders' registries in all 50 states have since troubled Patty Wetterling and she has been vocal about her opposition to including children on the registry, as well as allowing full access to the public. In an interview with reporter Madeline Barron, 
Wetterling stated, quote, no more victims, that's the goal, but we let our emotions run away from achieving that goal, end quote. In laminating how we treat sex offenders, she stated, quote, you're screwed. You will not get a job. You will not find housing. This is on your record forever. Good luck, end quote. She believes that by not allowing sex offenders who have served their time to reintegrate to society, we do more harm than good. Quote, I've turned 180 from where I was, end quote. So in summary, the Jacob Wetterling Act of 1994, one, established baseline standards for states to register sex offenders. Two, established a heightened class of offenders, quote, sexually violent predators, end quote, or otherwise known as SVPs. Three, required addresses verification every 90 days for SVPs and annually for all other offenders. Four, required SVPs to register for life and all other offenders to register for 10 years. And five, provided for discretionary public notification procedures when necessary to protect the public. So I think all in all, this act made a huge impact in what we're looking at today. It definitely was the start to history. All right, let's expand a little bit more on Megan's case. So we're moving into 1996. This is where Megan's law of 1996 was enacted. In 1994, seven-year-old Megan Kanka from Hamilton Township, Mercer County, New Jersey, was raped and killed by a recidivist pedophile. Jesse Temendaquaz, who had been convicted of two previous sex crimes against children, lured Megan in his house and raped and killed her. Megan's mother, Maureen Kanka, started to lobby to change the laws, arguing that registration established by the Wetterling Act was insufficient for community protection. Maureen Kanka's goal was to mandate community notification, which under the Wetterling Act had been at the discretion of law enforcement. She said that if she had known that a sex offender lived across the street, Megan would still be alive. In 1994, New Jersey enacted Megan's Law. In 1996, President Bill Clinton enacted a federal version of Megan's Law as an amendment to the Jacob Wetterling Act. The amendment required all states to implement registration and community notification laws by the end of 1997. Prior to Megan's death, only five states had laws requiring sex offenders to register their personal information with law enforcement. On August 6, 1996, Massachusetts was the first state to enact its version of Megan's Law. In summary, Megan's Law of 1996, one, mandated public disclosure of information about registered sex offenders when required to protect the public, and two, provided that information collected under state registration programs could be disclosed for any purpose permitted under state law. Also in 1996, the Pam Lynchner Sexual Offender Tracking and Identification Act of 1996 was passed, which established a law enforcement-only national database, the National Sex Offender Registry, which we're going to call the NSOR, at the FBI to house information about registered sex offenders. This law also, one, required state registry officials to immediately transmit sex offender registration information to NSOR, and two, allowed for the dissemination of information collected by the FBI necessary to protect the public to federal, state, and local officials responsible for law enforcement activities or for background checks pursuant to the National Child Protection Act. Moving into 1997, the Departments of Commerce, Justice, and State 
the Judiciary and Related Agencies Appropriations Act of 1998 occurred. As part of a larger appropriations bill, certain sections amended portions of these laws as follows. One, added to the federal standards all state offenses that are comparable to those listed in the Wetterling Act. Two, required registered offenders who changed their state of residence to register under the new state laws. Three, required registered offenders to register in the states where they work or go to school if different from where they live. Four, directed states to participate in the National Sex Offender Registry. Five, required each state to set up procedures to register federal offenders and offenders sentenced by court martial. Six, required the Bureau of Prisons to notify state agencies of released or paroled federal offenders. And seven, required the Secretary of Defense to track and ensure registration compliance of offenders with certain uniform code of military justice convictions. In 1998, the Protection of Children Form Sexual Predators Act came out. As part of a comprehensive bill to enhance the ability to prosecute and punish child sex offenses, one section directed the Bureau of Justice Assistance to carry out the Sex Offender Management Assistance Program to help eligible states comply with registration requirements. In 2000, the Campus Sex Crimes Prevention Act passed as part of the Violence Against Women Act of 2000. This act did two things, required registered sex offenders to notify the state of each institution of higher education at which the sex offender worked or was a student and to notify the state if there was any change in their employment or enrollment status. And two, amended the Higher Education Act of 1965 to require institutions obligated to disclose campus security policy and campus crime statistics to also provide notice of how to obtain information about registered sex offenders. In 2003, the prosecutorial remedies and other tools to end the exploitation of children's today, or in other words, PROTECT, Act occurs. The PROTECT Act of 2003 was a comprehensive bill intended to strengthen law enforcement's ability to investigate and prosecute violent crimes against children. The bill addressed sex offender registration and notification by requiring states to maintain a website containing registry information and required the Department of Justice to maintain a website with links to each state website. Moving into 2006, we're going to be talking about the Adam Walsh Act of 2006. This is the most comprehensive legislation related to the supervision and management of sex offenders in the Adam Walsh Act, which is also known as the AWA, named after Adam Walsh, who was kidnapped from a Florida shopping mall and killed in 1981. He was six years old. The AWA was signed on the 25th anniversary of his abduction. Efforts to establish a national registry were led by John Walsh, Adam's father. One of the significant components of the AWA is the Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act, or SORNA. SORNA provides uniform minimum guidelines for registration of sex offenders regardless of the state they live in. SORNA requires states to widen the number of covered offenses and to include certain classes of juvenile offenders. Prior to SORNA, states were granted latitude in the methods to differentiate offender management levels. Whereas many states had adopted structured risk assessment tools to classify and distinguish high risk from low risk individuals, SORNA mandates 
such distinctions to be made solely on the basis of the governing offense. States are allowed, and often do, exceed the minimum requirements. Scholars have warned that the classification system required under the Adam Walsh Act is less sophisticated than the risk-based approach previously adopted in certain states. Extension in the number of covered offenses and making the amendments apply retroactively under SORNA requirements expanded their registries by as much as 500% in some states. All states were required to comply with SORNA minimum guidelines by July of 2009 or risk losing the 10% of their funding through the BURN program. As of April 2014, the Justice Department reports that only 17 states, three territories, and 63 tribes had substantially implemented requirements of the Adam Walsh Act. In summary of the Adam Walsh Act of 2006, Title I, which is the SORNA, wholly rewrote the federal standards for sex offender registration and notification. The law, one, created a new baseline of sex offender registration and notification standards for jurisdictions to implement. Two, expanded the definition of jurisdiction to include 212 federally recognized Indian tribes, of whom 199 have opted to establish their own sex offender registration and notification systems. Three, expanded the number of sex offenses that must be captured by registration jurisdictions to include all state, territory, tribal, federal, and military sex offense convictions, as well as certain foreign convictions. Four, created the Office of Sex Offender Sentencing, Monitoring, Apprehending, Registering, and Tracking, also known as the SMART Office, within the Department of Justice, Office of Justice Programs, to administer the standards for sex offender notification and registration, administer the grant programs authorized by the Adam Walsh Act, and coordinate related training and technical assistance. Five, directed the Department of Justice to establish the Drew Soden National Sex Offender Public Website, which can be found at www.nsopw.gov, that provided one point of access to search all state, tribal, and territory sex offender registry websites. And lastly, number six, it established a sex offender management assistance program within the Department of Justice. In 2008, Keeping the Internet Devoid of Predators, Kids Act was passed, which was to address the issue of online safety. The Kids Act made the following changes to SORNA. One, required jurisdictions to collect sex offenders' internet identifiers in the registration process, and two, barred disclosure of offenders' internet identifiers. In 2015, Military Sex Offender Reporting Act passed as part of the Justice for Victims of Trafficking Act of 2015. And as an amendment to SORNA, these sections required the Department of Defense to submit information on any sex offender convicted via court-martial to NSOR and NSOPW. In 2016, International Megan's Law was imposed to address international travel by registered sex offenders. It required offenders to provide advance notice of any intended international travel and required jurisdictions to submit international travel information. In the beginning, we mentioned that there is lots of controversy between state and federal actions, so let's talk about those now. Since the passage of the Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act, states have grappled with how to alter their sex offender registries to comply with the federal statute. The minimum requirements are rigid and leave little room for agency interpretation through regulation, 
making it difficult to comply. States lose 10% of their federal burn slash JAG justice funding for each year they remain non-compliant. More than 10 years and over 1,000 bills later, 32 states are still not considered substantially compliant. Some states are intentionally non-compliant. For example, New York issued a letter citing the excessive cost of implementation and claimed the law would not increase public safety. Instead of SORNA's crime-based tier system, New York claims that its reliance on a risk assessment that estimates an individual sex offender's likelihood of reoffending better protects the public. Texas has cited similar reasons for noncompliance. Other states have attempted to comply with SORNA, only to be met with judicial opposition. Ohio's reclassification of sex offenders was held unconstitutional by the Ohio Supreme Court. Massachusetts faced similar challenges when its use of classifications for registration was also ruled unconstitutional. Courts in both cases found that retroactive registering of offenders, as required by SORNA, was at least part of what led to the illegality of the state's registries. One of the biggest impediments to substantial compliance with SORNA has been the law's requirement to include juvenile offenders in its registries. Many states have opposed these requirements, citing a higher likelihood for rehabilitation of juveniles. Other states have implemented SORNA's juvenile requirements only to have those actions struck down by the courts. Almost 25 years after the first federal mandate to establish sex offender registries, sex offender policy remains on legislative agendas as states try to innovate and discover the best ways to maintain public safety and manage sex offender populations beyond SORNA's requirements. Regulation of occupational licensing for sex offenders, for example, has long been a concern of lawmakers, but new industries and technology have spurred even more regulations. For example, since 2004, at least 20 states have prohibited sex offenders from participating in new tech industries. For example, since 2014, at least 20 states have prohibited sex offenders from participating in newer tech industries, such as ride-sharing apps, including Uber and Lyft. Evolving technology has also required states to address sex offenders' use of social media sites. At least seven states have passed laws controlling offenders' access to social media since 2014. Continued legislation is likely in light of a recent U.S. Supreme Court case striking down a North Carolina law making it a felony for registered sex offenders to access social networking sites where minors can create profiles. For federal actions, the U.S. Department of Justice's SMART office is responsible for oversight of SORNA. Since most states are not substantially compliant, the SMART office issued two sets of supplemental guidelines to increase states' flexibility. The 2011 Supplemental Guidelines gave states discretion to exempt juvenile offender information from public web pages. The guidelines also gave states additional latitude by only requiring registration of people who have left the justice system if they are later convicted of a new felony. In 2016, the SMART Office issued another set of supplemental guidelines focused on juveniles, these guidelines give states more flexibility in their treatment of juveniles and permit the SMART office to consider a series of factors when determining whether a jurisdiction is in substantial compliance with SORNA. These include examining registration requirements for juveniles who commit serious sex offenses, whether juveniles are prosecuted as adults or whether the 
jurisdiction is tracking, identifying, and monitoring juveniles who commit serious sex offenses. Even with this increase in state flexibility, these regulations have not brought many states into substantial compliance with SORNA. Okay, so we've touched on this a little bit, but let's get into the classification of sex offenders. States apply varied methods of classifying registrants. Identical offenses committed in different states may produce different outcomes in terms of public disclosure and registration period. An offender classified as level or tier one in one state with no public notification requirement might be classified as tier two or tier three offender in another state. Sources of variation are diverse, but may be viewed over three dimensions. How classes of registrants are distinguished from one another, the criteria used in the classification process, and the process applied in classification decisions. For example, in California, Tier 1 is the highest level for the most severe offenders, whereas in the neighboring state of Nevada, these offenders would be labeled as Tier 3. Additionally, names of offenders vary by state, such as rape in one state may be unconstitutional in another state and classified as sexual assault. Same crime, same punishment, same weight, different names. The first point of divergence is how states distinguish their registrants. At one end are the states operating single-tier systems that treat registrants equally with respect to reporting, registration, duration, notification, and related factors. Alternatively, some states use multi-tier systems, usually with two or three categories, that are supposed to reflect presumed public safety risk and, in turn, required levels of attention from law enforcement and the public. Depending on the state, registration and notification systems may have special provisions for juveniles, habitual offenders, or those deemed sexual predators by virtue of certain standards. The second dimension is the criteria employed in the classification decision. States running offense-based systems use the conviction offense or the number of prior offenses as the criteria for tier assignment. Other jurisdictions utilize various risk assessments that consider factors that scientific research has linked to sexual recidivism risk, such as age, number of prior sex offenses, victim gender, relationship to the victim, and indicators of psychopathy and deviant sexual arousal. Finally, some states use a hybrid of offense-based and risk assessment-based systems for classification. For example, Colorado law requires minimum terms of registration based on the conviction offense for which the registrant was convicted or adjudicated, but also uses a risk assessment for identifying sexually violent predators. Third, states distinguishing among registrants using deferring systems and processes in establishing tier designations. In general, offense-based classification systems are used for their simplicity and uniformity. These allow classification decisions to be made via administrative or judicial process. Risk assessment-based systems employ risk assessment instruments and, in some cases, clinical assessments, which require more of personnel involvement in the process. Some states, like Massachusetts and Colorado, utilize multidisciplinary review boards or judicial discretion to establish registrant tiers or sexual predator status. In some states, such as Kentucky, Florida, and Illinois, all sex offenders who move into those states and were previously required to register in their home states are required to register for life, regardless of their registration period in previous residences. 
Illinois classifies all registrants moving in as a sexual predator. For the public notification system, states apply differing sets of criteria to determine which registration information is available to the public. In a few states, a judge determines the risk level of the offender or scientific risk assessment tools are used. Information on low-risk offenders may be available to law enforcement only. In some other states, all sex offenders are treated equally and all registration information is available on the public on a state internet site. Under federal SORNA, only Tier 1 registrants may be excluded from public disclosure, with exemption of those convicted of a specified offense against a minor. Since SORNA merely sets the minimum sets of rules the states must follow, many SORNA-compliant states have opted to disclose information of all tiers. Disparities in state legislation have caused some registrants moving across state lines becoming subject to public disclosure and longer registration periods under the destination state's laws. These disparities have also prompted some registrants from moving from one state to another in order to avoid stricter rules of the original state. So let's kind of move into the exclusion zones. Laws restricting where registered sex offenders may live or work have become increasingly common since 2005. At least 30 states have enacted statewide residency restrictions prohibiting registrants from living with certain distances of schools, parks, daycares, school bus stops, or other places where children may congregate. Distance requirements range from 500 to 2,500 feet, but most start at least at 1,000 feet from designated boundaries. In addition, hundreds of counties and municipalities have passed local ordinances exceeding the state requirements and some local communities have created exclusion zones around churches, pet stores, movie theaters, libraries, playgrounds, tourist attractions, and other recreational facilities such as stadiums, airports, auditoriums, swimming pools, skating rinks, and gymnasiums, regardless of whether publicly or privately owned. Although restrictions are tied to distances from areas where children may congregate, most states apply exclusion zones to offenders even though their crimes did not involve children. In a 2007 report, Human Rights Watch identified only four states limiting restrictions to those convicted of sex crimes involving minors. The report also found that laws preclude registrants from homeless shelters within restriction areas. In 2005, some localities in Florida banned sex offenders from public hurricane shelters during 2005 Atlantic hurricane season. In 2007, Tampa, Florida's city council considered banning registrants from moving in the city. Restrictions may effectively cover entire cities, leaving small, quote, pockets of allowed places of residency. Residency restrictions in California in 2006 covered more than 97% of rental housing areas in San Diego County. In an attempt to banish registrants from living in communities, localities have built small, pocket parks to drive registrants out of the area. In 2007, journalists reported that registered sex offenders were living under the Julia Tuttle Causeway in Miami, Florida because the state laws and Miami-Dade County ordinances banned them from living elsewhere. Encampment of 140 registrants is known as Julia Tuttle Causeway Sex Offender Colony. 
the colony generated international coverage and criticism around the country. The colony was disbanded in 2010 when the city found acceptable housing in the area for the registrants, but reports five years later indicated that some registrants were still living on the streets or along the railroad tracks. As of 2013, Suffolk County, New York, was faced with a situation where 40 sex offenders were living in two cramped trailers, which were regularly moved around between isolated locations around the county by the officials due to local living restrictions. Now let's kind of go into the effectiveness. So evidence to support the effectiveness of public sex offender registries is limited and mixed, as you can imagine. Majority of research results do not find a statistically significant shift in sexual offense trends following the implementation of SORN regimes. A few studies indicate that sexual recidivism may have been lowered by SORN policies, while a few have found statistically significant increases in sex crimes following SORN implications. According to the Office of Justice Program's SMART Office, sex offender registration and notification requirements arguably have been implemented in the absence of empirical evidence regarding their effectiveness. According to SMART Office, there is no empirical support for the effectiveness of residence restrictions. In fact, a number of negative unintended consequences have been empirically identified that may aggravate rather than mitigate offender risk. Let's get into the debate surrounding registration. According to a 2007 study, the majority of the general public perceives sex offender recidivism to be very high and views offenders as a homogenous group regarding that risk. Consequently, the study found that a majority of the public endorses broad community notification and related policies. Proponents of the public registries and residency restrictions believe them to be useful tools to protect themselves and their children from sexual victimization. Critics of the laws point to the lack of evidence to support the effectiveness of sex offender registration policies. They call the laws too harsh and unfair for adversely affecting the lives of registrants decades after completing their initial sentence and for affecting their families as well. Critics say that registries are overly broad as they reach to nonviolent offenses such as sexting or consensual teen sex and fail to distinguish those who are not a danger to society from predatory offenders. Former Supervisory Special Agent of the FBI, Kenneth V. Lanning, argues that registration should be offender-based instead of offense-based. Quote, a sex offender registry that does not distinguish between the total pattern of behavior of a 50-year-old man who violently raped a 6-year-old girl and an 18-year-old boy who had compliant sexual intercourse with a girlfriend a few weeks prior to her 16th birthday is misguided. The offense an offender is technically found or pleads guilty to may not truly reflect his dangerousness and risk level, end quote. So like we said in the beginning... Not all convictions are what they may appear to be, and this would be an example of that. Some lawmakers recognize problems in the laws. However, they are reluctant to aim for reforms because of political opposition and being viewed as lessening the child safety laws. These perceived problems in legislation have prompted a growing grassroots movement to reform sex offender laws in the United States. 
Sex offender registration and community notification laws have been challenged on a number of constitutional and other bases, generating substantial amounts of case laws. Those challenging the statutes have claimed violations of ex post facto, due process, cruel and unusual punishment, equal protection, and search and seizure. The Supreme Court of the United States has upheld the laws. In 2002, in Connecticut Department of Public Safety v. Doe, the U.S. Supreme Court affirmed public disclosure of sex offender information, and in 2003, in Smith v. Doe, the Supreme Court upheld Alaska's registration statute, reasoning that sex offender registration is civil measure reasonably designed to protect public safety, not a punishment, which can be applied ex post facto. However, law scholars argue that even if the registration schemes were initially constitutional, they have, in their current form, become unconstitutionally burdensome and unmoored from their constitutional grounds. A study published in fall 2015 found that statistics cited by Justice Anthony Kennedy in two U.S. Supreme Court cases commonly cited decisions upholding constitutionality of sex offender policies were unfounded. A study published in fall 2015 found that statistics cited by Justice Anthony Kennedy in two U.S. Supreme Court cases commonly cited in decisions upholding constitutionality of sex offender policies were unfounded. Several challenges to state-level sex offender laws have been honored after hearing at the state level. However, in 2017, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court determined that SORNA violates ex post facto when retroactively applied. In September 2017, federal judge found that Colorado registry is unconstitutionally cruel and unusual punishment. Let's wrap this up by talking about the impact on registrants and their families. Sex offender registration and community notification laws carry costs in the form of collateral consequences for both sex offenders and their families, including difficulties in relationships and maintaining employment, public recognition, harassment, attacks, difficulties finding and maintaining suitable housing, as well as an inability to take part in expected parental duties, such as going to school functions. Negative effects of collateral consequences on offenders are expected to contribute to known risk factors and to offenders failing to register and to the related potential for reoffending. Registration and notification laws affect not only sex offenders, but also their loved ones. Laws may force families to live apart from each other because of family safety issues caused by neighbors or because of residency restrictions. Family members often experience isolation hopelessness, and depression. U.S. federal law prohibits anyone who is required to register as a sex offender in any state from participating in the Housing Choice Voucher Program or Section 8 housing or any similar federal housing programs such as public housing. Wow. All of this information was super informative and really eye-opening. I honestly do feel like I have a better understanding knowing the history and how it came to be. Yes, and you see just the constant battle continuing to go on today between the two different sides and yeah. per state. Yeah, I mean, a decade from now, we're going to have a whole new thing to talk about with the history um, yes. because it's still continuing to change. Yeah, definitely. 
All right, addicts, in wrapping up this week's episode, we hope you found this topic educational and we want to remind you to always be your own best advocate. Come back next week for another CA meeting. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and and stay stay caffeinated. caffeinated.